0: Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines
1: us. So, if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I've been reading a really fascinating book, Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat by B. Wilson. And I'm really excited about this because today we're talking about kitchen technologies and she gives us very thorough run through of all these things that we have in our kitchen that we probably take for granted. So I've been really inspired to think about the technologies that we use and why we use them, how our kitchens are designed for them or not, and how they influence the way we cook food so a couple of words about kitchen technologies one of the things i love about as we eat is that it has awakened new curiosities and revived old ones about traditions that we have surrounding foods like why we eat black-eyed peas on new year's day or why modern potatoes share 50 percent of their dna from one potato variant And also how humans have developed specific tools and techniques to cook, serve, and eat food in both practical and novel ways. And the fact that we have museums displaying all manners of cookery and tableware rendered in fantastic forms and interesting materials across centuries also truly speaks to the importance that we humans place on the ceremony of cooking and eating. Like, why do we care what and how prehistoric people ate? Except that we somehow consciously and subconsciously believe that it somehow speaks to the people that we are today and how far we've come Mm. or not. So when I think about the things that have captured my imagination, I remember seeing the fanciest salt shaker that I have ever seen in my life in a museum. And the irony is that I can't actually recall which museum, (laughs) although I'd hazard a guess that it was in Western Europe and probably the Victorian Albert Museum in London, because that's what they do. Right. Right. I also literally can't describe to you what I learned was actually a salt tower, except to say that it was silver, very tall, and very ornate. And I was awestruck by this salty vessel because it was a very far cry from anything I've ever seen on a modern dining room table. Everything about it spoke to the ceremony of the table, the wealth of its owners, the talent of its artisan, the importance of the spice— now, this was an extraordinary piece that I know wasn't necessarily meant for everyday use, but I also felt a little sad because I felt like it represented a standard that has been lost in time. So I decided today I wanted to look into salt cellars. Now, the salts with a capital S is what we call an assortment of vessels that hold table salts, which is different from the other salts that we could talk about, like brining salts, smelling salts, curing salts, etc. The salts are known as salt cellars, salt towers, salt boxes, salt pigs, and our modern salt shakers. And they are made in silver, pewter, glass, bamboo, etc., and are collectible in their own right, like teacups, spoons, and egg cups. They even have a sort of hierarchy as to whether the container stores or serves salt. A salt tower, for example, most likely was a master salt, from which salt was portioned into small trencher salts that are formally part of a trencher or place setting. So the idea was that you had your own spot at the table, you had your spoon, your trencher was your entire place setting, and you probably had your own item meant to hold salt that you would use to flavor your food. So most of us have probably heard stories that ancient Roman soldiers were paid in salt, such that solarium is the basis of the word for salary. It's certain that Roman homes had a selenium at home that held the family's salt supply, this was both part of a ceremonial salt offering during a meal, but it was also used to dispense salt for eating. Elaborate salt cellars found their way to dining tables during the Middle Ages, which is from 5th to 15th century CE. Ornate master salts, sometimes decorated with sea motifs like boats or shells, were placed near the head of the table, a long-standing place of honor, and a guest's social and financial status was made clear by whether they sat above or below the master salt. I think it really speaks to how important salt was. Absolutely. Master salts continued to be made in ornate and fanciful styles through the Renaissance and Baroque periods. And the more ornate they became, the more stationary and ceremonial they were as well. So, this discovery led me to nefs. A nef is an elaborate table ornament, usually crafted from silver, silver gilt, or gold, meant to be semi functional as it could hold salt, spices, cutlery, or napkins. Basically, a very elaborate display. It's a French word in origin that is an alternative word for carrick, which in turn is a three or four masted ocean sailing ship found in 15th century Europe, primarily Spain and Portugal for trade and a precursor to the more famous galleon. Nefs as miniature model ships are referenced as far back as 1239 in France, as just a hull that may have been used to hold wine, but got substantially more elaborate to include decorations of enamel and jewels, wheels, masts, sails, and even crew. And the British Museum has an automaton nef from the late 16th century that also has a clock, fires cannons, has trumpets blare, has smoke rising from the cannons. The thing sounds amazing, and I absolutely have to go see this thing now. Can you imagine that on a table? I'm trying to right now. It wouldn't fit on my table, I can tell you that. So back to a more realistic table, less the beautiful automaton ship and more reality. (laughs) So the more that these large structures and sculptures got elaborate, the more difficult it really became to pass the salt. And so references to trencher salts, again, that's sort of a, a subset of the salts in general, where it's more of an individual serving. These were documented in England in 1588, and tiny salt spoons also appeared on dining room tables in the 17th century as individual salt trenches proliferated. What I found really fascinating was there actually is a salt spoon measure that's occasionally found in older English and French recipes noted as SS or SSP in English and Kier Acel in French. I think I got that mostly right. And that actually has a specific measure that's equivalent to a quarter a teaspoon. Oh. I love the idea that, th- that this salt spoon was so everywhere and specific that it earned its own designation. I also find it fascinating that we don't see that anymore. We have the teaspoon measure still, of course. But we traded out the salt spoon for the teaspoon at some point. But again, I
0: think it goes back to right now, salt is mundane. We don't think about how hard it was to get it. And so when no. you had that measurement of a specific salt spoon, it references how very important this ingredient was and the place that it held in society at
1: that point in time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, a great equalizer for this was the Industrial Revolution, and it made it possible for new techniques of manufacturing tableware, and this ultimately changed the quality and quantity of things on the dining room table. So pressed glass manufacturers circa 1825 made the production of easily molded glass salt trenchers easy. People wanted to have them, people needed them, it was part of your tableware, and so suddenly you've got these all over the place. And salt shakers appeared sparingly on Victorian tables, but they suffered from this issue of salt clumping, which was a problem finally solved in 1911 when anti-caking agents were added to table salts. So when we think right now of the free-flowing salt, that's not what our ancestors had to contend with. They had probably a chunk of salt that you... (laughs) had to scrape some off of in order to use it as a flavoring agent. A curious thing I noticed when I was preparing for this topic was remembering what was and was not present on my family's dining room table and how that fundamentally related to my family's own philosophy about cooking and eating. So some years after my encounter with the beautiful museum salt cellar, I suddenly noticed that we were using a small trencher style salt cellar at home. And here's what's interesting to me. I don't remember there ever being a salt shaker on the table ever. Food prepared by my mom was seasoned while it was being prepared and served at the table as intended by the chef, my mom. Her philosophy was always that you had to taste your food before you added any salt. So if I were to taste something and feel like I wanted to have a little bit more flavor, add a little bit more salt... I'd actually have to get up from the table and go to the spice cabinet where we kept our salt and, and add it from there. We didn't have a mechanism for having salt on the table. Hmm. That salt cellar we were using was part of a silver service that my stepfather inherited from his grandmother's estate. She had exquisite taste. And while they weren't like museum level fancy, they were certainly nicer than an average salt and pepper set. I now have two small crystal open salt cellars that I keep near my stove for seasonings at a little pinch or something. I don't have any other kind of salt shakers. I've inherited my mom's attitude about food is seasoned the way I intend it to be. I've really started to notice that actually I have a philosophy about that and it has carried through in my cooking, both from my mom to now. Now, if I had a guest over, I probably would put the salt cellars on the table I know people do like to season their own food, but generally my my attitude, my philosophy is this is how I intend it to be. How do you store your salt lay? Do you have a salt cellar or salt box or salt pig or any of those? Do you have a salt tower? I am kind of a salt
0: fiend. I am one of those people that add salt before I taste because I love salt. I absolutely love it. And I have several salt cellars by my stove. Mm-hmm. I have sea salt, I have kosher salt, I have Himalayan pink salt that's in a grinder. The first thing I do when I serve people is I always have the salt grinder and the pepper grinder set on the table. So, I do, I believe I believe in salt. <laughs>
1: My food probably does range to be a little bit more salty than not because I, I I also love the way salty food tastes. I would rather eat salty food than bland food. I'm definitely into flavorful foods for sure. Yeah. It's weird to me how I've got this similarity and this contrast from my mom's cooking style. Now she cooks a lot of flavorful foods as well, but she does tend to be lighter on the salt than I do. Yet neither of us tends to put salt on the table. It all happens mostly in the kitchen.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting concept for sure. My dad also is a salt lover, and he's not supposed to have it, but (laughs) he still is a salt lover. So we did always have salt and pepper shakers on the table. Like you said, we were talking about passing those philosophies, essentially those cooking philosophies and eating philosophies down through our families and how it affects how we also serve our guests and our family.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's my story about salt cellars. I think what really fascinates me because I always try to say, So what, Kim? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you talking about salt cellars? And it really was that I had that really visceral moment of looking at it and imagining the rest of the table, the one that I saw in the museum, right. imagining the rest of the table, trying to understand why I didn't have that on my table at home. And then why we weren't also just embracing these things that were high quality manufacture. Why are the things on our table? made of porcelain or plastic? And there's some obvious answers to that. It's easier to care for. It's easier to clean. It's less precious. But why is that important to us now that things are less precious? So these are the things that keep me up at night. I'm going to say that a lot because I think a lot.
0: Anyway, <laughs> Speaking of staying awake, as I was cleaning the AeroPress this morning, I got to thinking about how many ways there are to make coffee and Mm. how many different coffee makers that I've seen come and go in my kitchen and in my mom's kitchen. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to take a look at uh, the history of coffee makers. Yes. But before we venture into the world of coffee makers, we probably should take a quick look at coffee itself. There once was a young Ethiopian goat herd tending his goats when he noticed his usually subdued goats frolicking happily near a bush with bright red beans. Kaldi, that was the goat herd's name, decided that he might imbibe in some of these berries that seemed to uplift his goat's spirits. And so the lore goes, a feeling of elation came over him and he declared, these berries are sent from heaven.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm glad there was a scribe on hand to write down his exact words. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, right. So
0: one version of the story says a monk <laughs> traveling through the area of the heaven sent berry bush observed Caldi and his dancing goats and Caldi told him of the divine power of the berries and the monk thought his prayers had been answered. The monk seemed to fall asleep during his prayers. His prayers have to be pretty darn long if you're <laughs> falling asleep. <laughs> say... but eating the berries allowed him to stay awake to the end of his prayers so
1: heavens indeed
0: i I can't say i disagree i think coffee pretty much is (laughs) (laughs) and it wasn't long until an unnamed monk dreamed up the idea of drying the berries and boiling them to make a hot brew and thus coffee culture was underway Coffee culture. <laughs> so I, I want to go through a really quick timeline of the coffee maker, and I want to focus on one specific invention in this timeline. So the Turks allegedly invented the first method of brewing coffee. It was called and still is called the ibrik method, and it's still used to this hmm. day. Pulverized grounds are boiled in water and then the grounds settle to the bottom. And there's no filter in this. So when you're pouring it, you have to pour it very carefully so that you don't end up with grounds of coffee in your cup, And then from there, we're going to jump to the 1800s, because there isn't a lot of written documentation around coffee makers from that time until the
1: 1800s. They probably, Yeah, they probably just boiled beans and water, wouldn't yeah. they? I-, I guess, because nobody wrote
0: down, it must not have been that important. Yeah. So in the 1800s, the French press, the percolator, the vacuum coffee maker, and the precursor to the espresso machine were introduced. Wow. In the 1900s, The piston coffee machine was patented. The first electric coffee maker was introduced. And Mr. Coffee, the first home automatic drip coffee appliance, made its debut. And I think probably every home in this country had a Mr. Coffee. Yeah. I think. I I would think so. I would have to say that that was a true statement. But there was one thing during the 1900s that could be categorized as a necessity is the mother of invention invention when it comes to coffee makers. And that was the coffee filter, which has had a really big impact on almost all coffee makers. Starting her morning with a nice cup of coffee, Melita Benz should have enjoyed the warm, deep chocolate colored liquid as she sat at her kitchen table in Dresden, Germany. But no, with each sip, she grew more and more disappointed with a brew. The further end of the cup that she got, the grittier each sip became. She also despised the chore of having to clean the grinds out of her copper pot. So she did what any of us would do. She decided to figure out how to make a perfect cup of grit-free coffee and simplify the cleaning process. I'd like to think that's what I would do rather than just sit there and complain <laughs> about my gritty coffee. <laughs> So after discovering several ways that didn't work, she ripped out a piece of blotting paper from her son's school notebook. This was the late 1800s. Kids still used pen and paper for schoolwork, fountain pens specifically, that would leave these blobs of ink and they'd run and smear if you didn't blot it. Hence, blotting paper. Mm hmm. She stuck it in a tin pot that she had punched holes in, put the grounds on top of the blotting paper, and poured hot water over the top. And voila! Grit-free coffee and easy cleanup. All right! It's what Melita called perfect coffee enjoyment. And she continued to test her invention during what she called coffee afternoons. So she would pour coffee and serve it to acquaintances to get their feedback on what they thought of this. In 1908, she was awarded the patent for the coffee filter, and in December of that same year, M. Bents was founded. Her sons and her husband, Hugo, were the first employees of the company, and in 1910, she won a gold medal in the International Health Exhibition and a silver medal in the Saxon Innkeepers Association. Nice! During World War I, medals were requisitioned to build zeppelins. Paper was rationed, coffee beans were banned, and Melita's husband was conscripted. So Melita made cartons. In 1928, demand for the product was so high that they had to go to two shifts, and they employed 80 workers. The company continued to grow and had to move out of Dresden because they couldn't find a facility that was big enough, Mm. so they moved Mm -hmm. to Minden, where they still operate. Oh wow. Yeah. Melita was also a very progressive lady and in 1938 she founded Melita Aid which was a social fund for the company's employees and it still exists today. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Then during World War II they stopped producing filters again because they were they were required to cooperate with the Nazi regime mm. to produce mm. military supplies. Mm -hmm. Which I think must have been very hard for her because after the war, they contributed to a program that aimed to compensate victims of World War II. Oh,
1: wow. That's progressive. It was very progressive. Yeah.
0: Like I said, the company operates still today. And in 2017 was the information that I could find. It employed 4,000 people across the world and it's still operated by the family. Melita died in 1950 at the age of 77, and most of the Melita locations have a picture of her up on the wall. And a company spokesman said, every employee knows Melita Benz and her exceptional role as the mother of the corporation. And I, wow. just, I just found that very fascinating because she... Founded this company, continued to operate it through two wars. She founded one very progressive social fund for her employees. And also, mm-hmm. they saw how important it was to help to compensate for victims of World War II.
1: You will recognize Melita on uh, coffee filter yeah. packages. Oh. Yeah, I had no idea yeah. it was a real person behind that. Right. I, I don't know what I thought. Obviously, the name is foreign sounding to me, right. but I wasn't I, I couldn't have told you it's German. I couldn't have told you it was a woman who invented yeah. this. That That is literally named for her. Yeah. And I love hearing about female entrepreneurs in any walk of life. Right. And Germany has a lot of them, actually, because the <laughs> thinking back to the currywurst. That was a German woman behind behind that as well. Yeah, and the thing that I loved about this story, too,
0: was that her husband, Hugo, really supported her in this whole endeavor,
1: as did her sons. Yeah. Yeah, they were all in on on the family business, it seems. That's awesome. And that still today, we're thinking about her and using her products. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there must have been hundreds of thousands of people who were drinking gritty coffee and not happy about it, I would presume. And yet, it took this one person to figure that out, right. to start making that a smoother, more perfect cup of right. coffee. Melita, we salute you. Yes,
0: we do. So the next time you have that nice, grit-free coffee, you can mm-hmm. think about Melita Bentz.
1: God, coffee sounds really good
0: right now. Yeah. Before we go have our coffee, I was
1: just thinking there are cultures, actually, that put salt in their coffee. I was thinking about that, too, because it can help accentuate the flavor. It doesn't have to be a salty coffee, although there are salt coffees. I promise you, our beloved audience, I'll put a little something on social media about salt coffees. Perfect.
0: I'm excited to see that
1: yeah i think it'll be fun i'm gonna try it i'm gonna give you a little bit of history about it and look forward to reading more about salt and coffee together in perfect harmony can't wait i can't wait to try this all right so before you go try salt and coffee Mm -hmm. what's next um oh we are going to be talking about the foods that bind us in holy matrimony or an unholy matrimony depending on your persuasion we're going to be talking about wedding foods next time really excited Mowage! Mowage! It's what it's what brings us here in two
0: weeks. Which reminds me, because I don't think we've told our audience yet, that now we have decided to publish our episodes every other week.
1: We're going gew- to yeah. give ourselves a different pace, but we are really excited about the things that we have lined up for you. So stay tuned as we eat, fans. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't
0: miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please.
1: And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and
0: one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it.
1: You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.